Welcome to the Sleep Science Pod, the podcast that reveals the science behind one of the most fundamental, yet most mysterious of human behaviours, sleep. I'm Dr. Caroline Horton. I'm an academic psychologist and the director of Dreams Lab. I also really love sleep, so personally, as well as professionally, I know how important it is for our mental and physical health. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to guests about their common sleep complaints and offering evidence-based tips for getting that all-important shut-eye. Together, we'll evaluate the evidence that sleep improves all aspects of health and well-being, and whether it really is that ultimate panacea. So far in this podcast series, we've focused mainly on adult sleep. We have considered general trends and issues with common sleep patterns, like worries making it hard to switch off, having an irregular sleep schedule, or simply not sleeping for a sufficiently long time. In the present episode, we'll turn our attention to sleep in children and teens. This might interest you in particular if you are a parent or carer, or if you are around children at all. Starting with infancy. We know that babies are born without the same kind of sleep cues and needs as adults. They sleep around 20 hours a day initially, and then around 16. They nap. They don't care if it's day or night. They just sleep when they're ready. Babies experience sleep cycles and circadian rhythms, even in the womb, we think, reminding us of that principal importance of having different kinds of sleep, and consequently, we think, different functions. In fact, as an aside, just this week, evidence has emerged from a group of sleep scientists in Brazil that octopuses have two distinct types of sleep too, further emphasising the importance of having a deep restorative sleep as well as a complementary, more active sleep, just like our REM. It's clear to see in babies that sleep is essential and that the drive for it is so great that quietness or stillness isn't necessary in order to achieve it. After some time spent awake, the infant will tire and need sleep to restore energy levels. As the infant grows, they need a little less sleep and routines typically change from including a couple of daytime naps, plus a longer nighttime bout of sleep, likely still with some disturbances for a one-year-old, to having one nap and a decent bout of nighttime sleep, perhaps even uninterrupted by around the age of two. Evidence suggests that the longer a child continues their naps for, the better their cognitive development and physical health. Nurseries, preschools and then schools vary in their support of such sleeping strategies, unfortunately, with very few schools indeed in the UK offering the opportunity for a nap in the day for all pupils. So culturally, by the age of four, most children stay awake in the day entirely, even if they may be tired and might fare better with a short restorative snooze. There is, of course, a massive pressure on parents and carers in dealing with a child's haphazard sleep routines. I had my two daughters just under two years apart, and so as the first was just beginning to sleep through the night, I was experiencing disturbances to my own sleep from the pregnancy with the second. I went about three years without sleeping a full night through, and during that time I found it really hard to finish a sentence. My ability to focus or find the right words was massively impaired. In hindsight, it wasn't really safe to drive, let alone ferry a couple of infants about. But that's what parents do all the time. It's plain hard. 
The main issues arise from, well, two real challenges. The first being the lack of day and night cues that a baby is born with, as well as other things like having a tiny stomach that can't hold enough milk for many hours at a time, meaning that the baby will undoubtedly need to wake regularly throughout the night and therefore that a parent or carer will need to deal with. The second issue, which relates to the first, is that this creates a mismatch between routines and the households. The adults want to sleep at night. The baby will want to wake, at least in part, in the night. Consequently, it's not always easy or culturally accepted or even possible for an adult to sleep in the day to catch up. So the drive for sleep at night builds even further. I recall getting through the days okay when my kids were first born, but I'd struggle at around 10pm because it would hit me then that I really should be getting ready for bed at that time. But I would be almost afraid of allowing myself to get to sleep because I just knew that that sleep that was so deeply needed would be interrupted. Amazingly, people get through this. We're impressively adaptable creatures really. And infants grow and learn about routines, for the most part at least. But pressures on mismatched routines can continue if other people in the house have particular needs, like an older sibling wanting to sleep in in the morning, but their baby brother wakes at 6am. Or a parent has to work until late, meaning that kids are disturbed when the parent comes home. It's worth trying to think about whether there's any flexibility in your household's overall routine to try to bring the sleeping patterns together at all. Remember that consistency is key so we don't want to have one pattern for weekdays and another for weekends. Habits form best when they are structured and predictable. When kids are young, they have the ability to sleep when they're tired, providing the conditions are right for them. However, from around 12 months onwards, they start engaging with the world in such a way that they enjoy it and don't want to miss anything. They learn that sleep might prevent them from doing cool things. When they're able to communicate clearly, either with shouting, crying, actions or words a little later on, they'll try anything to keep a parent close by to continue their wakefulness and to prevent the switching off. In part, that's why they like a parent with them when they go to sleep, so they know they're not missing out on anything fun. There are other reasons too, of course. They feel safe with the cuddles and want you nearby. It's good for them to learn to self soothe in general so they can do this at night if and when they wake on their own and you're not there. They might try asking for a toy or throwing it out of the cot so you can return it for them. They might say they want a drink or a song or a story or just about anything that prevents them from going to sleep. As stated in the book Go, to, Go the Fuck to Sleep by Adam Mansbach, the cubs and the lions are snoring wrapped in a big snuggly heap how come you can do all this other great shit but you can't lie the fuck down and sleep? As with all the other general routine recommendations, doing the same thing each night pre-sleep and not deviating from it means that children will learn what to expect in terms of getting ready for bed, enjoying the parts of the routine, like a bath and a story, and then knowing that it's time to switch off, no compromise. It does help them as well as those in the household, if there's a predictable pattern. It's all easy in theory, of course. I know it's hard in practice and there will be blips along the way because that's life. And to some extent, you could argue that having kids be adaptable could help them sleep when on holiday or having sleepovers in a different room when they're a bit older. And adaptability can be helpful too. 
but that is built on the foundations of security and familiarity. A child or even an adult will struggle more with change if they can't self-soothe and sort out their need to get to sleep independently. We might all be a little out of sync at the moment. I'm recording this on the first Monday following the spring crop change, so we've just moved from GMT time in the UK to British summertime. You might feel cautiously summery too, because this coincides with the relaxation of COVID lockdown restrictions a little. I suppose there may be some excited socialising in the gardens this evening. So there are changes all round. The crop changes in particular can be really quite disruptive. Rather than waiting for the crops to change and then expecting our bodies to leap into a new schedule, we should prepare for them with a gradual rehearsal of going to bed a little earlier each night for a good week or so before they change and getting up a little earlier too. That gradual shift is less of a shock to the system then. Sleeping in right until you need to get up can be particularly damaging, especially if you have stayed up at the old or usual time the night before, as you could end up effectively losing an hour's sleep. We have to plan ahead to prevent these changes from happening. Evidence from a number of countries have demonstrated significant increases in car accidents injuries in the workplace and heart attacks following these spring crop changes due to sleep loss. It's real and it's dangerous. So take care and if you're tired, try to rest up. Last week we talked about using yawn diaries as a measure of your general circadian cycles. With 90 minute cycles from peak to peak, with a real energy dip 45 minutes in between, a shift of exactly one hour with the crop changes means that we're totally out of sync with our natural circadian rhythm. Again, bear this in mind and try to create enough time in your day, not only for sufficient sleep, but also for a little readjustment period in your pre-sleep routine and your waking routine until your body has adjusted. Sometimes the changes fit our cycles much better than before. I still find the concept of clock changing pretty baffling and there are several campaigns to scrap the idea, but it's somewhat habitual across the globe now. So try to focus on and learn about your own routines to help you and your loved ones adjust safely. Elsewhere, there are similar shifts in circadian preferences in children and teens in particular. Teenagers are so widely described as lazy, unmotivated, disinterested, sullen, moody, grumpy, the list goes on. Well, for sure, the vast majority of growing young people experience change as they grow, grow and develop in character and identity as well as physically. And some of those may be attributed to hormones as well as a growing yearning for independence and a burgeoning intellect that they want to test out. There's the opportunity for lots of new or first experiences and a neural circuitry that is more ripe for encoding and learning than any other time of their lives. The frontal lobes haven't quite matured yet, so that reduced executive function leads to a little more risk-taking and a little less consideration for consequences than a typical adult. But there's something else that happens to young people during adolescence. Their circadian cycles shift later by around three hours, something called sleep phase delay. Teens naturally and intrinsically want to stay up late and to ensure they get enough sleep, sleep in later in the mornings. Forcing a teen out of bed at 7.30 a.m. when they haven't got to bed until 2 a.m. means that they could be sleep deprived to a dangerous degree. No wonder they might be a bit sullen and moody. Considering their complete competing demands and education schedules, let alone their desire to integrate socially and test out new experience, they really need to be sleeping well. In fact, 
teens really need a good hour more sleep than adults to function optimally, so around nine hours a night compared to eight. Something else that is commonly seen in adults as well as teens is sleeping in later in weekends to catch up on missed sleep in the week. A paper published by Christopher Deppner and colleagues in Current Biology in 2019 explored how people tried to catch up on sleep debt accrued in the week with weekend lie-ins. Well, firstly, those with the general sleep debt suffered in a number of ways, including taking in more calories after dinner, having reduced energy expenditure, increased weight, and detrimental changes in how the body used insulin. For the weekend catch-up participants, their sleep debt seemed to be resolved in that over the course of the week they had a reasonable total sleep time, albeit an inconsistent one, but they still demonstrated most of these problematic behaviours in terms of metabolic dysregulation. So there is a cost, and that's before we even think about the poor sleep habits around sleeping irregularly. With this in mind, a number of campaigns to start school later for teenagers have been developed and implemented to allow teenagers to have a better sleep window for sleeping across the whole week rather than just weekends. Researchers Dana and Phillips explored the effects of a one-hour delay to school start times in a county in Kentucky in the US, and their findings were published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine in 2008. They demonstrated that not only did average hours of nightly sleep increase, and catch-up sleep on weekends decreased, but also the average crash rates for teen drivers in the county in the two years after the change in school start time dropped by 16.5% and elsewhere in the states, excluding the county that this uh, increased later start time was implemented, those crash rates actually increased by 7.8% over the same period. Wow. So starting school a single hour later helped allow pupils to increase the amount of sleep they were getting, supporting consistency of a schedule across the whole week, and consequently it decreased their risk of early morning car crashes. Other campaigns have demonstrated similar increases in academic achievements following similar improvements to sleep quantity and quality as well. There are a few organisations across the UK that are supporting these endeavours and the sleep charity that we've mentioned before has also supported parents and teens with their sleep in a number of ways. A link to a really helpful e-leaflet on teenage sleep is provided within this episode's description. But I wanted to find out about potential educational and social benefits for teens of changing their sleep. I spoke to someone who had implemented a later start time at their own institution. Today we're speaking with Dave Bass, who is principal of the Sir George Monarchs College. Dave has implemented changes to the start times for pupils at his college, and we're going to talk to him to find out if it's had any effects. Morning, Dave. Morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Would you mind telling us a bit about your college first of all? Okay, so Sir George Monarchs College is a sixth form college, so all of our students are aged. 16 to 19. Uh, we have about 1,800 uh, students uh, with us, all studying post-GCSEs, pre-university qualifications. Could you tell us about um, the changes to the start time that you've implemented? So, so what does that look like um, and what, what physical changes did you make? So we introduced three years ago now um, 
a, a start time, with, I'll, I'll, I'll expand upon this, but a start time of, of 10 a.m. in the morning. Now that's, a, that's, a, that's the time when the first lesson of the day would start. Um, the college is still open a lot earlier than that, um, but that sort of serious business of being in the classroom and concentrating and studying all the way through to lunchtime, that starts at 10 o'clock. Um, and the, th that structure of the day then enables us to do other things before 10 o'clock. Um, most importantly, or I, I guess the I guess the sort of key thing there would be that previously we were dissatisfied with um, how the day started. We felt that we had young people um, kind of rush rushing in at the last minute, often having had quite a lengthy commute around London on London buses uh, coming from different boroughs, um, and they were leaving things to the last minute, and there was no opportunity to. Um, greet those students to enable them to acclimatize, to check that they were okay, um, for them to, to grab breakfast. Um, so uh, there was that, that uh, if, if you like, that sort of social uh, aspect to wanting to push the start of the academic day uh, back to, to, to 10 a.m. And what time did it start previously? So not, we were an hour earlier, so the lessons were starting at nine o'clock. So have you formalised that social time before lessons start at 10am? Yes, um, that's an interesting point. I mean, we have in the sense that uh, you know, we're keen to press home to our students that although it's a 10 o'clock start to lessons, we also have on their timetable, if they have a 10 o'clock uh, lesson, and of course in sixth form students have a timetable that changes from day to day, so they may not always have a 10 o'clock start even, but we... Um, we also put onto students' timetables what we call an entry period. Now, an entry period isn't a, isn't, isn't, um, a kind of uh, sit-down session at the start of the day. It's, it's actually uh, there to denote a period of time during which we expect them to enter the college, hence entry period. So if you have a 10 o'clock lesson, we ask you to arrive um, in a window between 9.30 and 9.55. And all of our students come in a single entrance into, into the college and would all be um, greeted by a team of staff that might include myself, but would certainly include um, mentors, coaches who are there to say good morning and check that, check that uh, there are no kind of signs of um, uh, kind of distress on the part of any students, but also just to, just to build up their confidence of you know, greeting adults in the morning. It sounds like a, a wonderful winning situation. Do you find that pupils do make the effort to arrive um, closer to 9.30 rather than 9.55 to, to take up that opportunity? Or do you still yeah, find yeah. that your pupils are quite tired? Uh, well, that, that was always going to be the sort of big challenge, you know, because we, we used to find that there was, there was a problem before, um, before we started as a team and, and I joined the college. And as I was joining the college, it was a huge problem of lateness. You know, there was no kind of concept of the, the need to kind of be there on time. And, um, and so the, the, the kind of the anxiety would obviously have been in introducing this, that um, you'd simply shift the lateness back one hour and people would still turn up late. Uh, but I think partly because of the, the fact that it is later and is more realistic, um, it's a more realistic timescale for young people. Uh, and... Um, 
the, the, the you know the link to the fact that they will be you know more ready for the day by by that time has meant that uh, we've significantly reduced lateness. I'm not saying we don't have any students who don't arrive late. We we do, but the critical mass of students is now arriving on time and punctuality is is a lot better. Uh, when when a, when a, if another college was to look in and see what we do and they say, oh, well, you, you know, you're, you're the college that does the, the ten o'clock start, and we've we've heard about that. How's that going? And I think they tend to sort of see it as a as something of a kind of like a novelty thing that we do, but it it's 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 not that. It's part of um, a very conscious attempt to to be a college that um, uh, was prepared to to make quite bold steps to sort of innovate and wanted to have a clearer sense of what it was what what it was intending to do in order to make things better. You know, I, I suppose you'd call that it's part of a sort of a cultural vision that we had, and and part of that cultural vision was uh, going every mile to make sure that students were working as hard as they could, despite um, very very disadvantaged backgrounds um, and all of the you know immense distractions that young people uh, that come to our college. Um, experience in their in their lives it's an interesting tension actually between trying to enhance the routine and being personally responsible for timekeeping and also according to some almost indulging teenagers to sleep later because there is still that belief that teenagers are just lazy and that's uh, why they struggle to get up in the morning so to what extent did sleep feature in your rationale for uh, changing these start times? Um, I, I mean, it certainly did did feature in the sense that, um, it, it, you know, we, we wanted to be sure that, that whatever changes we made um, would support the ambition of students working harder and being able to concentrate and and wanting to try and find the sort of prime time in the day when when students when we needed students to dig deepest would they be at their best um and uh so uh, so 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 that was certainly a consideration i mean i do think though that um we we still face an immense challenge around um the quality of sleep that teenagers have you know, in in summary, I sort of feel that the uh, the, the 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 benefits around the late start, because in theory it would uh, align better with with a natural sleep pattern of a teenager, um, need to be I, I think understood in the context that I think the most important thing is that we're trying to instill um, we're trying to instill good lifestyles and uh to go back to that word routine we're trying to in, in, instill routine and uh i think uh, you know a sense of structure into young people's day and i think that the absence of structure uh it can be very very undermining uh, as i guess we've seen in recent times with with lockdown yeah i mean one thing we've seen when we've done work with children is that you can't change one member of the household's routine in isolation everybody needs to be on board with that so what you're talking about in, in relation to routine makes a lot of sense and um, I've got one big final question I think Dave 
did it work? Yes, um, I, I, I think it undoubtedly um, it's been a, a you know a significant um, aspect or a significant reason um, in that kind of journey to improvement for us. It sounds like your approach has been very understanding of your pupils' needs and, and their circumstances, not just in terms of sleep, but in terms of their family situations and the diversity of uh, needs that they have. So I'm really glad to hear that it's been successful. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Dave showcased the need to think flexibly about the needs of different groups. For him, his pupils in London often had lengthy commutes as varying opportunities for sleep. So he built in a buffer to allow his pupils to get to the college before formalised learning commenced, an hour later than it used to be, and in the process, emphasised the importance of having time to socialise, both with one another and for staff to check in on how the teams were doing. This apparently formal strategy is actually quite holistic in terms of considering team health and education, which is really great, especially in the context of a large college in London. But this wasn't a research project, so formal outcomes on sleep quality or quantity weren't assessed. But Dave has been able to recognise more personally the impact of his later start times on individuals and the culture in the college, with really positive consequences. Not everyone will have the capacity to think so differently about routine, but some of us might. And over the past 12 months or so, even more of us have been forced to think differently about how we are structuring our own time and routines. Perhaps post-pandemic, the commute may occur less frequently or even be eliminated entirely from some people's daily routines. We may learn virtually more than before, with additional opportunities for asynchronous engagement with classes, lectures, or other media like podcasts, giving individuals the autonomy to create systems that work optimally for them. For adults with a responsibility for younger people, be they infants or teens, we can be armed with the knowledge that sleep is absolutely crucial for development at a time when so much learning and growth occurs. It's our duty then to create the best conditions to facilitate that, and hopefully that will benefit everyone in the household. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Sleep Science Pod. I hope you found it helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Sleep and Memory. And until the next episode, sleep well. <laughs>